Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Calabra, an R&D platform that brings your lab's world-changing research together in one shared space. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, podcast host, keynote speaker. I work on my wife's farm. So I have a diversity of background, but my major passion is how to share science with the public. We live in amazing times. And years ago, I thought that this little podcast might last a few episodes before we'd run out of content, and now we find ourselves immersed in daily breakthroughs that I can't wait to tell you about. And it's exciting to have a partner in Calabra, an IT company that has solutions for all of the scientists who listen to this podcast. What's especially great is that they do a, a job in supporting this podcast by producing the transcripts, by hosting, by assisting in the production. It's only going to make a better website, a better interface, and help us make a better product to share the cool stories of biotechnology. So you'll hear a little bit of the old format because the interview for today was recorded in the way I used to do things, the pre days. So you'll see something you recognize. But it's a wonderful interview, and I hope you really enjoy it. A new breakthrough in biotechnology. Here we go. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, podcast host, a fruit tree grower, and today we're going to tackle a topic that I haven't visited in a very long time, but has recently popped back up in the news. Now, it turns out that upon sequencing of the human genome, we found lots of ancient viruses, lots of retroviruses tucked away inside the human genome. And back when I studied this for real, like back in the 1990s, it was estimated that probably 1% of the human genome was the existence of these ancient viruses, um, maybe signatures of old disease, maybe going back to pre-human primates. And uh, now they're becoming increasingly important because they're actually being connected with some rather insidious neurological diseases and some recent ones with COVID. And so we'll visit this and visit some of the new therapies. Today we're speaking with Jesus Martin Garcia. He's the CEO and co-founder of Genuro in uh, Switzerland. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, this really is an interesting topic. And so let's start at the beginning because I'm a little bit foggy on this as well. Uh, Could you remind us a little bit about what a human endogenous retrovirus is and how many do we currently understand are in the human genome? Thank you, Kevin. You summarize actually very well. These are remnants of virus infections that affect our ancestors. Viruses cannot replicate by themselves. They have to use the machinery within our cells to replicate. And when they do that, 
they leave traces in the DNA of the infected cell. And if it's a germline cell, it is passed on to all descendants. And this is a process which you rightly said started, you know, long, long time ago with our primate ancestors and continues even today. And today we know that human endogenous retroviruses represent 8% of the human genome, 8%. That means that the 30 families of identified human endogenous retroviruses are copied hundreds of thousands of times all over our DNA. And this is retroviruses. So these are uh, like HIV is a good example of a retrovirus. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Well, it means that we have within our DNA remnants of these, of these infections. And uh, as you can imagine, evolution has given us very strong tools to repress the expression of these uh, viral genes within our own DNA, mostly epigenetic which basically prevent them from being expressed, but also many other genetic tools. But so normally they should not be expressed. They should just be latent. But what happens and what we have been, you know, looking at with an increasing amount of detail over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, is that when viruses from the environment interact with one of our cells, one of the things they do is they take away those repressors. They take away those mechanisms that stop are human endogenous retroviruses from expressing themselves. And that's when you will have the expression of what is in the viral genes in our DNA, and which in some cases, in some individuals, can lead to the expression of proteins which are still pathogenic. Yeah, this is fascinating stuff. So these are latent genes that are, or well, viruses that are present inside the genome that are made up of a couple different genes that are responsible for the replication and the um, uh, expression or the, the assembly of the vir viral particles and that these are in the genome, but they're locked away. And, and these are, I guess, heterochromatized or other ways in which the DNA constrains to put them away and lock them off. But you were mentioning that they can be excited by new viral infections. And so that's kind of the, uh, you know, where, where this came up recently was this relationship between Epstein-Barr virus and multiple sclerosis. And could you tell us a little bit about that? that that's, that's a really good question. We know Epstein-Var has been you know, associated with MS for a very, very long time. But we talk about it very a lot these days because there's been a superb publication in Nature looking at a very large number of patients that has shown that you needed Epstein-Var virus to develop MS. But the key question there remains is, okay, 95% of the world population are infected with Epstein-Barr. So why don't 95% of the world population develop MS? And there's nothing in the classical genes that allows us to determine that. And what we're trying to bring is we, basically, we bring in the other half of the explanation. And we showed already over 10 years ago that the Epstein-Barr virus was able to depress or, or to, to trigger the expression of a protein, which is called WOV, which is a protein from human endogenous retroviruses, which is pathogenic and it can, play, it can play a big role in neurodegenerative diseases like MS. So in fact, you need, you need EBV on the other hand, but you also need individuals that have the ability to express this WR protein and together you will have the development of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and this protein that's expressed, is that a protein, when, when you say the protein is pathogenic, you mean that that protein kind of triggers 
other molecular events that lead to issues like demyelination, or is this like a prion protein that itself is infectious? No, it's a it's a uh, it is a protein that triggers other mechanisms. Actually, the WR protein is a very potent activator of innate immunity through the TLR4 pathway. So what it will do is it will activate innate immunity, activating, for example, microbial cells in the brain, and you will have the release of uh, innate immunity cytokines like IL-6, uh, TNF-alpha, etc. without going too much into the specifics, but it basically will trigger the excitement of uh, innate immunity that can turn against the host, and in this case, from uh, microglia, against the myelin on the, on the axons. In fact, you know, what, what, is, what is an autoimmune disease? An autoimmune disease is when the innate immunity has been triggered by something we don't really understand that forces it to turn against the body. And this proteins from the human endogenous retroviruses are in fact not recognized as foreign because they're expressed by your own cells, by your own genes. So this will not be recognized as a foreign assault. It's a, it's a, it's a choice horse to be able to activate your immune system. No, very good. And just so I can clarify for the listeners who may not be familiar with this, myelin is the uh, kind of fatty coating and protein and fat component that uh, covers um, the axons of ner nerve cells, covers nerve cells. And myelin is responsible for increasing the conduction from nerve cells exponentially. And so this is a, uh, this myelin or demyelination is a process which is, uh, that typically affects folks with MS and really is kind of the hallmark. So it slows nerve conductivity. And, and so that, that's the basis of this. But this is what's interesting about your, about the association between the uh, human endogenous retroviruses and pathology is that it seems like all of these are neurological diseases, at least from my skim assessment. And is that true? Or what are the different pathologies that are associated with excitement of these retroviruses? The first, the first human endogenous retroviruses were actually discovered at Institut Merieu in France in the late 80s, published in The Lancet in 91, before the decoding, the full decoding of the human genome. And they were isolated from the cells from MS patients. And Genuro was created as a spin-off of uh, the Institut Merieu back in 2006 to really focus on neurodegenerative diseases. And this is why we're interested in two proteins from this 8% of our DNA, which are WOV in MS, and today in long COVID, and WK and K of the envelope protein of the K family, which has been associated uh, now very closely to ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Now there are other work going on in in in, in other companies, in other and, and in academia, linking human retroviruses and cancer, and seeing that uh, this uh, these proteins can also play an important role in cancer. But we really focus, Genuro is focused on neurodegenerative diseases. This is, this is the topics that I can cover. When we first saw the topic come up again, I first went to cancer. That was my, my thinking from way back in the 90s. And uh, so it's really exciting to see them 
finding good connections with neurodegenerative disease because many of these seemed so elusive for so long that there were therapies to slow the pro progression, yet not something to reverse the progression or, or completely serve as a cure. So that's why this is really exciting. Could you tell me a little bit more about the specific neurological diseases that appear to have a human retrovirus basis and maybe even touch on COVID? Yeah, in, in, for MS, I mean, this is where the, the WR protein was first discovered. It is systematically found in the brains of all MS patients, whether they have been diagnosed uh, a few months ago or after 50 years. And uh, it's really very specific to MS, the normal appearing white matter. It's, uh, it is not in Alzheimer's patients or Parkinson's patients or patients that disease with stroke or, or from a car accident if they didn't have MS. And what we know today is that this protein is really could be one of the key drivers of this compartmentalized inflammation within the brain. You know, this innate immune inflammation, mainly of microglia attacking axons. And it could also have an important role in stopping the remyelination process of oligodendrocyte precursor cells. Those cells are like the stem cells of myelin. And whenever there's an insult to myelin, as you very well reminded us, Myelin is very important for the information circulation in the brain. And whenever there's an insult to myelin, this OPC cells migrate to the side of the lesion and normally differentiate to be able to repair the, the lesion. And it's been shown that the presence of this protein in the brain also stops these OPCs from differentiating because they transiently express the TLR4 receptor and they're, they're, they're stopped right there. So we believe by neutralizing this protein, we're going to be able to, you know, address this compartmentalized inflammation in the brain that is characteristic of long-term neurodegeneration and also be able to reestablish the remyelination capacity in the brain. Now, other this, 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 uh, to, to our big surprise, I would say, we had quite a number of academic institutions looking at retroviruses during the uh, not so long ago, COVID crisis. And uh, we were absolutely flabbergasted to see that SARS-CoV-2 actually was able to de-repress the expression of WOF in the lymphocytes of patients. And uh, this was uh, found out by an Italian team published in the Lancet eBiomedicine, showing that uh, hospitalized patients had extremely high levels of expression of WOF. And then the levels of expression were associated or correlated with the outcome of the severity of the disease. But what uh, was interesting for us is also to see that other studies showed that it was not only expressed in lymphocytes, but also on endothelial cells, on the vessels of the brain, of the heart, and of the lung, as well as uh, for patients that disease with COVID in microglia, in the absence of SARS-CoV-2. So, I mean, this... WOF may be playing a double role in the, uh, in the acute phase. It may act as an accelerant uh, to the innate immune system. But what we're looking at and more, most interested in today is that we still found that WOF in patients that have long COVID or post-COVID or PACS, post-acute uh, consequences of uh, syndromes of COVID-19. And this, the presence of this protein, which is going to activate the innate immune system and has a pathogenic 
has a direct pathogenic uh, action on nervous system cells may well explain you know, many of the symptoms that are experienced by what's called post-COVID patients, people that have brain fog, they have all sorts of uh, cognition problems, neuropsychiatric problems that could be very well explained by the presence of this protein. If we look at the, the existence of these human endogenous retroviruses, do they vary between populations or ethnicities? And even do these go back into subhuman primates? That's, th there's been tremendous work done by Cedric, Professor Cedric Feshop at Cornell and University of Utah. He's been looking at the different expression of WOV or presence of uh, the different retroviruses in the human DNA. And there's a super interesting publication on uh, HERF K that shows that we all have the same base of, uh, of K presence, the family K presence. And then it has a tremendous differentiation in terms of the different human subpopulations. And the different human subpopulations have all very different patterns of uh, K expression or K presence within their DNA, which is due to the very different environments and probably viruses that these populations have been exposed to. And this could be also one of the reasons why autoimmune diseases have such, I'd say, you know, human subpopulation characteristics. For example, when you look at MS, MS is predominantly a Caucasian disease. There's close to uh, an estimated 1 million MS patients in the United States, but there's only about 12,000 in Japan. And, uh, you know, it's not because the Japanese are, don't have the means to detect or, or diagnose MS. So there are very clear differences between human subpopulations in terms of autoimmune diseases that could also well be uh, sourced within this uh, viral part of our DNA. That's a really interesting point, especially when you consider autoimmune disease uh, across animals that that it doesn't seem like these things are transmissible or similar between um, different species. You know, like you you hear about, you know, I don't know that I've heard of an animal with a demyelination disease like MS. And so these things are very population specific, it seems. Absolutely. You're right. I mean, we call them retroviruses, the human endogenous retroviruses. The term virus is, is not really a, a, an exact term because these things cannot replicate. You're just activating a gene. So this is why, for example, antiviral treatments come about you know, a few hundred thousand years too late against these human endogenous retroviruses. It's a gene that has been activated. It not, it's not a virus that's replicating. Now, this is really fascinating stuff. So we'll pick up on the other side with some of the new solutions and therapeutics that your company is devising and the mechanisms for how they're proposed to work. So we're speaking with Jesus Martin Garcia. He's the CEO and co-founder of Genero, and they're located in Switzerland. So we'll be back in just a moment with more Talking Biotech. Hi, Talking Biotech listeners. The Talking Biotech podcast is brought to you by Calabra. Now, as a PI, we have many challenges in the laboratory, and one of them is data curation and archiving. So how do we get everybody on the team to agree upon a common format um, other than saying, do it my way? <laughs> what if there was a format that was agile and simple, and that would help people 
actually want to put their data in one good solid space. And this is what Collabra does. You won't ever need to worry about trying to find research that happened a year ago. Now make sure that everyone on your team is in the same place with respect to how to curate and store those important data. Learn more at Collabra.app. That's spelled C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Jesus Martin Garcia. He's the CEO and co-founder of Genuro, who's focusing on neurological on therapies to address some rather insidious neurological conditions, which have remained rather elusive. And this is really great to know that there's some uh, understanding of maybe how these things are starting and how they're progressing, and now how to reverse them. So let's talk a little bit about that. What have been some of those traditional therapies for ALS and MS? Uh, let, let's start with MS. Uh, if, uh, you know, for MS, MS is a disease where we've made, thankfully, a tremendous amount of progress over the last 20 years. Uh, we've been able to uh, really find ways of reducing dramatically the number of relapses. What are relapses? Relapses are manifestations of uh, adaptive immunity with uh, new lesions forming in the brain and uh, that will recess over time. This is why it's called the remitting relapsing phase, which most patients go through at the beginning of the disease. And we have today we have extremely potent anti-inflammatory drugs that are able to really very largely reduce the number of relapses and therefore have increased the quality of life of MS patients tremendously. And we have about 15 drugs on the market. Uh, they all have different, different mode of actions, but they all belong to the same family, which is you know, immunomodulating or immunosuppressing adaptive immunity. Unfortunately, there is still a huge unmet medical need in MS, which is the fact that even if patients are treated against relapses and they are effectively you know, not, not having this adaptive immune crisis anymore, 85% of them will still see their disability progress over time. So today, and that's a neurodegeneration mechanism that we have absolutely nothing today to be able to stop or even significantly reduce over time. And the drugs against adaptive immunity do have some effect on progression, but it's, uh, it's relatively minimal because in terms of their impact over long periods of time. And uh, we can see that today what the MS community, the regulatory authorities and everybody would like to see and have are drugs that can tackle the neurodegeneration mechanism, that mechanism that is driving the increase of disability over time. Now, very good. And, and I think that you really point out maybe a little bit of an oversight on my part is that you mentioned, you know, there's 1 million people who suffer from MS in the U.S., but what are some of the symptoms and how does it lead to disability? The, uh, the, this, there's really two parts, two components of this disease. On the one hand, you have the remitting relapsing phase, which most, most patients suffer at the beginning of the disease for a few years. And as I said, we have very good drugs against that today. That will manifest by, uh, you know, adaptive immune crisis, uh, driven crisis. For example, there's a new lesion in the brain, somewhere in the brain form. It's a little edema that has been formed. And depending on where, the, where that edema sits, you would have immediately, uh, when you wake up in the morning, 
a different kind of symptom. You could have problems with your vision, you can have problems with your matricity, you can have problems with your cognition. And it all depends where that, you know, is, is the lottery of where those lesions are going to form. And uh, we know today that uh, there's a lot of lesions that don't have a clinical manifestation that you can see under MRI because they don't directly affect uh, areas of the brain where you can have a direct clinical impact. But uh, we there, there are others that will have a, a very clear and dramatic impact on the patient, like, for example, a temporary loss of vision. You know, the, the industry has made a tremendous effort and we have very effective drugs against acute inflammation. Well, what makes the drugs that your company is developing different from what's already out there? We're not targeting acute inflammation. We're not targeting B and T cells that are penetrating the brain and which are, you know, all the drugs, all the drugs on the market today are basically using that pathway. What we're trying to do is to try to stop innate immunity. We're trying to, to calm down that compartmentalized inflammation that persists in the brain of MS patients. It's not visible under MRI because activated microglia you don't see on MRI. Those cells are resident in the brain. And the fact that they are activated, they turn into M1 phenotypes that become aggressive. It can wrap around axons and, uh, and impact and destroy myelin. And on the other hand, I was saying before, the repair mechanism of the brain, the, uh, the, uh, the stem cells of myelin, the OPCs, that will migrate to the site of the lesion of MS patients, will mostly fail to differentiate and repair. So you will have an, a, a basically an atrophy of the brain because of those of those uh, that that slow cooking long term inflammation, but also a decrease of the integrity of myelin because of its inability to repair, and that process will over the long term, you know, have have a a very strong impact, unfortunately, on people's disability, because uh, there is some compensation that can be done, especially in in younger patients, what's called the cognitive reserve. But at one point in time, both atrophy and, uh, and uh, myelin integrity will result into a long-term disability. And that's what we're trying to stop. We're trying to neutralize a protein that we believe and, and have shown in models plays a key role in both the activation of that innate immunity, of that compartmentalized inflammation, and on the other hand, on the demyelination process or, or failure to remyelinate. And, and the type of drug that you've de designed here, you're targeting that protein, but what kind of drug is it? It's an antibody. Uh, it's an antibody which has extremely uh, strong advantages and disadvantages. The advantages of an antibody is that it's extremely specific. And since it basically targets and binds only to this protein, and therefore it is very safe. And we've shown today in over 460 patient years of, of clinical trials, that we have a very high degree of safety. Uh, now, the disadvantage of it is that uh, we confronted, like all the other companies or that want to have antibodies in the brain, is that very little of uh, the antibodies that you give to the patient actually end up in the brain. Then uh, That's the problem that uh, all the drugs, all the antibodies against, against uh, diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson and obviously MS have which is that you have to give relatively high doses. But we've shown that even at high doses, our antibody has a very good tolerability profile. 
Okay, that's really good. So we also talked about ALS, and is that also a demyelination disease, and are there different proteins that mediate the ALS progression that you've targeted? Absolutely. It's, it's a different protein. It's the envelope protein of the HERF-K family, and uh, I must... Uh, I was, you know, in, in, we say, give to Caesar what's to Caesar. Uh, it was NINDS in the United States, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, that were the first to elucidate the uh, role of this protein in the destruction of neurons in ALS. ALS is a very different disease. I'd say it's, uh, it's very much, MS is a disease that can develop itself over, you know, 30, 50, 60 years. Unfortunately, ALS is a much more aggressive disease where the survival of patients at two and five years is, is really a poor prognostic. So what they have shown is that this protein that, again, should not be expressed uh, in, in the brain is able to uh, dose-dependent destruct uh, motor neurons and that uh, it may be playing a very important role in the, uh, in the development of, of this disease. And uh, General has entered a research partnership with them a few years ago. And we now have, at the end of last year, showed the proof of concept of a, a new antibody, which is uh, specific to this k off protein, that is able to neutralize its pathogenic effects in vitro, in vivo, and ex vivo. So we're now looking forward about you know, developing this program and trying to bring this to LS patients as soon as we can. Well, this is really fascinating because we never really, or I never really understood the basis of these rather insidious diseases and things that have actually run in my family. So it's really nice to know that there is progress being made on these fronts. Where are the clinical trials now? And uh, you mentioned some of the results so far, but does it look like this is something that we could expect to find in clinical applications sometime in the next you know, few years? Well, the, uh, we are right now finishing uh, our phase two trials at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden on patients whose disability is progressing without relapses because they've been treated with rituximab, which is a uh, highly uh, efficacious uh, anti-CD20 therapy. And we expect the results at the end of March. So uh, if that goes uh, as we, as we uh, have planned, we would be able to start a phase three with uh, MS patients, uh, you know, within the year or early next year. So that's going to go very fast. For COVID, we just received a grant from the Swiss Confederation of uh, $7 million to start a phase two trial on, on post-COVID patients who express the WR protein to see if uh, the uh, administration of our antibody can uh, lower or stop these uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms that they're experiencing. And for ALS, we're about one year from starting clinical trials. It's, as you know, with biotechs, always a matter of funding. Yes, uh, that seems to be the trend. And the clinical trials are so expensive and, you know, probably can't be that easy to recruit a huge number of patients because you said, you know, this affects one in a, you know, a million people in the U.S. Uh, ALS probably much lower. And so you have to be able to find a class of people to be able to treat, you know, at the same time. So it, 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 it seems like these are rather, uh, they can't get here soon enough, but it seems like there's many barriers between them getting here. Uh, what are some of the other uh, major uh, barriers that we have to think about in terms of uh, leading before these drugs can reach the market? 
you know, I, I don't think that uh, recruiting patients is such a difficulty because there are about 2 million MS patients and 85% continue to have progression of the, the disability despite being treated with uh, effective drugs against relapses. So we're not saying we would like to change the treatment of these people. We think that we should add to the anti-inflammatory drug, a drug against neurodegeneration. So that, that's an approach that basically opens up very much uh, the, the population that could be eligible for this. In terms of post-COVID, unfortunately, as you may know, it seems to be affecting about 10% of the people that have SARS-CoV-2, which means that in Europe and the United States, we're talking about over 10 million patients that today have neuropsychiatric symptoms. Uh, that could be addressed uh, with, uh, hopefully, a treatment against this WOF protein. And you're right, in ALS, uh, there's, there's f- about 5,000 patients, new patients a year in Europe and the United States. And there's a critical need for a treatment there, and it's an urgent treatment because those patients' uh, health is unfortunately deteriorating very fast. So uh, recruitment uh, is, is not my main my main worry uh, in, in this. Uh, you know, we... We are, we, we are trying to have the expertise and to assemble the teams that allow us to do that. For example, our chief medical officer in multiple sclerosis uh, is the person who developed uh, ocalizumab at Roche and, uh, and ofatumumab at, at Novartis. We, uh, so, so expertise is always a, something that for me is very important that we try to attract within our company and obviously the funding which goes up and up with the times and, uh, and uh, is always a constraining factor for small biotech companies. Yes, understood. Yes. Uh, but here's another thought on this that maybe I'm you know, way off base in my understanding, but when you have a very specific targeted therapy like a monoclonal antibody, is this even a kind of drug that you might recommend in the absence of pathology for people who maybe have a family history or maybe a genetic predisposition that would suggest they have a higher likelihood of, of developing MS or ALS? You know, is this something that may even be uh, taken before symptoms even become evident? That's the ultimate dream, I think, for everybody. And the, the only long-term solution to the, uh, the healthcare cost problem that we all have which is at one point in time to be able to enter preventive medicine. I think we're not yet there uh, from a mentality point of view, also from a regulatory perspective, uh, from a financial perspective. But uh, yes, it is, it is the ultimate objective, I think, of everybody uh, over the next uh, you know, few decades is to turn, uh, to turn from a, a, a let's repair to a let's prevent type situation, which would make, first of all, patients' lives so much better but also the impact of disease on society is so much lower. So if listeners would like to learn some more about your company or these therapies, where should they look online or social media? We have a website where we have put uh, together some videos that try to explain what are human endotrinative viruses, how, how do they actually become expressed, and what is the role in, in different diseases. We also have a YouTube channel that uh, has these uh, videos on and we have a twitter account okay so do you have do you know where they could find that on twitter is it at general o official at general o okay very good so thank you very much so jesus martin garcia thank you very much for joining me today best wishes going forward and as you have breakthroughs 
I hope I can be first on your list to share them with everybody through this podcast because this is really exciting and, and I wish you all the luck in the world. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Really appreciate it. And as always, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write your reviews, share them, whatever, uh, you know, share with friends. Uh, there's so many people who are affected, one on 330 here in the States with something like MS. And letting them know that there are new therapies that are on the horizon may bring a lot of comfort to families who bear the burdens associated with these types of neurodegenerative diseases. So share with many and let's make people excited about the future of new medicines. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast was brought to you by Calabra. If you've ever struggled to easily find your research data, or if you've tried other laboratory notebooks and found them to be too slow, clunky, or unintuitive, these were the problems that Calabra was designed to address. All Calabra features, including note-taking, task management, inventory, protocols, and collaboration, are free forever for up to 10 users, so there's absolutely no risk in trying it out. Learn more at Calabra.app. That's C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Kevin Fulta and his guests. They are not their views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.